Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gerardo Polly. And this, oh, sorry. One of the best bits of advice I've ever received was to find good mentors and to learn from them. Trusted people who have already done what you're trying to do now. I've been fortunate throughout my career to have some fantastic mentors to help guide me, but I realized that they'd be hard to find and also hard to commit the time to one. This is why we've gathered some of the best minds from the veterinary world and squeezed them for their wisdom so that you don't have to learn the hard way. With the help of our guests, we flip the veterinary profession on its back and explore its soft underbelly to find the tips, tools, and inspiration that you'll need to build the career that you've always wanted. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Most vets who've been in the profession for some time think that they have some pretty solid communication skills. What do you think, Hubert? I'd say so, yeah. I've certainly learned a few things over the last couple of years. Well, I don't know. That's where I think you're wrong. Apparently, most vets don't do all that well when it comes to the kind of communication that our clients really want from us. Did you know that according to a study done, the average time it takes for a vet to interrupt the conversation Sorry, is... sorry, G, I, I wasn't really listening. What, what were you saying? <laughs> okay. Well, not only did you interrupt, but also you weren't listening. So that's two things. But that this is exactly the reason why we contacted Professor Sydney Adams to give us some insights on communication done the right way. Cindy Adams is a professor in the Department of Veterinary Clinical and Diagnostic Sciences at the University of Calgary, where she teaches in the Clinical Communication and Professional Skills programs. She works to improve communication practices in veterinary medicine and education. Dr. Adams has developed evidence-based communication curricula and methods for teaching, learning and evaluating communication skills across North America, the UK and Australia. Her work forms the basis for communication skills taught in many vet schools around the globe. Her co-authored book, Skills for Communicating in Veterinary Medicine, was released in 2016 and has earned widespread recognition in the veterinary medical practice and education around the globe. Cindy is also a popular speaker at conferences around the world, and we are thrilled to have her with us on The Vet Vault. In this episode, Cindy tells us why we all need to increase our efforts in improving our communication skills, how to rapidly gain client trust, and how to set yourself up for the perfect consult. And I guarantee you that this is not just for new graduates. It doesn't matter where you are in your vet career, you're bound to learn something new here. We talk about agenda setting, listening, perceptual skills, and how to have difficult conversations about money. And Cindy also answers a few burning questions our listeners have about tricky communication situations. And when you're done listening, check out the show notes for the resources that Cindy mentions in the episode. There's some very useful stuff about talking about money, talking about medical errors, and how to run training programs for better communication. Now, get your listening ears on and enjoy Professor Cindy Adams. And one more thing. If you enjoy this podcast and you feel that you've gained something from it, then please tell a few of your friends about it. In fact, don't just tell them. Forward the link to them. And then ask them a week later if they've listened to it yet. And if they say no 
and make them put their headphones in their ear and sit there with them to make sure they listen. And then tell them to give us a five-star review on iTunes, please. Good evening, Cindy, and welcome to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the time to, to chat to us. Um, I just wanted to clarify so, so I get it and so that the listeners all know. So you teach communication skills to veterinary students um, and set the curriculum and communication for, for several universities in, in is it globally or just in, in, in the States and in Canada? Yeah, so um, it, it's, it's globally. Um, I've just come back from Latin America working with schools there to try to set a communication program in place. Um, this is Calgary's, a, it's a bit of a, a model, I guess, in some ways for things that are pretty decent about what it takes to have a program. So we have a lot of visitors come here as well and get training. So if I'm not out uh, teaching in different places, people come here for, for training. Okay. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That's amazing. How, how, how long have um, uh, you been doing this for with regards to the participating or leading the, the communication um, side of, of veterinary medicine in, in, at, at Calgary? Yeah. And so, you know, it even started before that. I started, um, I'm a graduate of the Ontario Veterinary College and um, had a huge interest. My first career is in social work. I think some of you know, I practiced social work for 17 years. And in that time, every context I worked in jails, women's shelters, et cetera, had animals inherent to them. And so I had this huge interest in, um, there was this lovely scholarship at the Ontario Veterinary College. I got it and I got to go do my studies there and then try to integrate human and animal health and well-being vis-a-vis communication program. So I started that program in 2000 at OVC, the Ontario Veterinary College, and then I got brought to Calgary in 2006 to try to build the to build a program here. And Alberta is a relatively wealthy province, and so the the big um, draw for me was actually having money that I could uh, to build a good program. Mm. So I've been doing it since 2006. Wow! 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 And then you said at, at the talk I heard you at, you said your daughter is also a, a recent graduate vet. Is that, that correct? Yeah. yeah. So Camille, my daughter, she's um, working up north. So that would be about nine hours from Calgary. She's a mixed animal dog. And what's fascinating about Camille's story, she talks to me once a week or so, or sometimes every night, depending on how the day goes. Um, but amazing things have happened for her. Um, she's obviously been immersed in communication. She was a Calgary grad, so she had the, the depth of teaching here. But she's like the top three salesperson in the practice of 12 doctors. And, and she's, you know, and I mean, I don't mean it to be about money, but what I mean it to be is that her skills have certainly contributed to her ability to work with clients and affect patients' health outcomes and uh, get adherence. So this stuff really works. So that's the types of stories that she tells me. Um, she's also able to, um, retrieve money from clients for which have been, you know, clients of the practice for years, but I really don't pay their bills. Yeah. And so Camille's also been very successful in getting some money in the bank for the practice owners. So again, she attributes that to communication. So does she actually listen to your advice or, or is she like most kids? Who, <laughs> uh, I know, I know my kids will listen to anybody other than me, but if I try and teach them something, they, nah, their dad doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like yours are younger than mine. I mean, she's 30 and she's, you know, she's old enough to know. Um, she's pretty, pretty convinced though. I mean, she, we problem solve a lot of things, you know, medical errors, what happens when that happens? What about the people that don't pay money? Um, so she puts in, she puts stuff into, into practice. 
Lovely. Um, yeah, and, and so teaching of communication skills to, to students, um, I think it's come a long way. I, I, I qualified almost 20 years ago now, and, and my, in my uh, veterinary course at, back in South Africa, our communication training was one Friday afternoon for about two yeah. hours. Uh, and, and there was a sort of an unspoken rule. Anything that was scheduled for a Friday afternoon normally meant it's not going to be an exam, so don't worry about it. You're going to come with me if you want to. No. So everybody would sit there planning the weekend instead of really listening. Um, I think the, the, only, yeah. the only thing I remember from our communication training was, uh, and, and it's probably not the worst lesson in the world, uh, the guy who taught us said, every client who comes in the door has something written on his forehead um, that spells, please make me feel important. Which uh, mm, nice, is not nice. a, it's a, it's a good place to start, but but that's yes, literally all is. I remember from communication. Do you find do you find Cindy that there's still, to some degree, a perception that communi communication skills are a, it's a nice to have thing, but but not essential, and that it's when one of the soft skills, so to speak, rather than one of the more important clinical skills. Do you still find that? Well, I certainly found that when I started, it was a beast. I mean, it was. Uh, it was a really tough go. Um, now it's so much a part of our culture. I think North America wide, it's a big part of the culture. Um, when I travel elsewhere, like I mentioned, it's not necessarily so. I mean, I, it takes me back a good 15, 20 years where you've got a lot of naysayers, you people that don't, don't believe in it. You've got a few keen people like yourselves who get it amidst a lot of folks that go, no way, you're not taking time from anatomy. You're not taking it from ClinPath. Um, I mean, I'm situated, I'm doing schedules right now. I have a very substantive course. It's, it's, it's one third of the curriculum. So a lot of my colleagues have had to surrender time and start to teach more efficiently so that we can, um, you know, address the communication. So the students are bought in and the number one, um, the third uh, most highly ranked feature of our graduates are the communication skills. So our hosts, our doctors that are receiving them are, they're seeing a huge difference because they're getting graduates from other uh, colleges in, in Canada. Wow, that's incredible. A third of the curriculum. Yeah. Do you, do you get feedback from practice then? It's interesting. So, so if you guys have a very strong communication program, do you, is there any information to show that your graduates do better in terms of just in terms of satisfaction and less mental health issues or find practice easier in the, in the first few years? Is there any, any feedback in, in, in that regard? It's a great question. It's a piece of research that we'd like to do. We need to follow them out into graduation. We get like, um, we're now going out to the practices and we're a, a pretty uh, disparate province, a lot like parts of Australia that I visited, um, where uh, we have a distributed model. So on our fourth year, the students don't have a teaching hospital, they go out into the practices. And um, we're now out there uh, flying around and doing workshops with these host practitioners that take our students that haven't necessarily had the communication training. Mm. And they're starting to comment that they're noticing, you know, our students have obviously things to work on, but, mm. um, but they're noticing that they're different and they will put them in front of really ch challenging conversations, uh, challenging clients and our students are pretty steady. So that's what they're telling us. But we need, we need to do that research. We need to follow them out in practice now and find out if they're holding the skills and what impact it's having. It's, it almost certainly has to. I, if, well, from, from, from a sample of one, which is myself, if I just think of how much easier life 
became after five or ten years of practice where you start just figuring it out for yourself and learning communication skills of your own bat suddenly work just becomes a lot less stressful and a lot more fun um, yeah but it'd be fantastic research to see yeah yeah it would be it's a great great project we need to do that i um, um over the last uh maybe last year i've did quite a lot of um uh, reading and also attended a few several workshops about four workshops on consultation skills and dealing with clients and difficult clients and things like that and i actually read your book i read the book the um and i, I must admit there were some sections in there that were a little bit dry <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but there is heaps of research in there um like it references so many um human and veterinary uh, so much human and vet, veterinary literature um and there's some um some key aspects there that really changed the way that I view the consultation process. We, we use the Calgary Cambridge style, um, at university. Um, and we were taught nice. that at university. And so the kind of flow made sense and, and that always was the kind of core backbone of, of our consultation styles, but even just the, 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 the one big thing, which was really building partnerships and mutually yeah. agreed agendas and um yes. confirming with them and not and like and the whole concept that the the their concerns that they they talk about aren't necessarily in order of importance that was a really big one for me which is like oh wow they could say five things that were concerning them but then it was up for you it's up to you to determine which one was most important um, and through questioning and, and, and clarifying and, and developing, you know, mutually agreed agendas and things and developing partnerships. So nice. there was a, a couple of key things and it just blew my mind that the person who was there may not necessarily actually be talking in a, in a sort of a, a concise and coherent manner that the most important thing was the first thing they said. Was there any kind of piece of research there that really blew your mind or was a big light bulb moment for yourself when you were, when you were developing this program? Well, your point is very, very valid. And that's quite often clients will come in and they will volley concerns in the order of, um, in terms of safety, how safe they feel with us. Mm. And so they might, you know, tread lightly to see how we react, to see how we grab hold of things. And so that's why this, you know, I talk a little bit about in the book about the Frisbee versus the shot put model, right? Like mm -hmm. it's really this iterative process of, you know, checking back and forth, you know, Mrs. Smith, you know, you came in first and you mentioned that um, he needs to have his nails trimmed. You also mentioned, you know, he's having trouble getting up and down the stairs and he's eating a little bit less than normal. Um, I just want to, you know, ask, I've been asked questions about all those things, but I'm really going to start with one in particular because it's really caught my attention. Would that be okay with you? So it's, it's that kind of back and forth, even though they've identified he needs a nail trim, but you're thinking, oh dear, trouble going up and down the stairs, it's a golden retriever, a little bit overweight that type of thing. So it's, it's really about this um, revisiting, resorting, reprioritizing, uh, screening, you know, that variable that you see in the Calgary Cambridge Guide. Once you've got the agenda, it doesn't mean it's necessarily done. It's that one more volley of just ask, you know, you've mentioned this, this, and this. Um, mm -hmm. What else? What other, what other additional things? My mind says we might want to reprioritize those differently than how you presented. Is that okay? Well, absolutely. But I just, I don't like his nails being long. And so I, you know, I thought we could trim those. Okay, of course we will. I'm going to kind of go revisit the stairs, getting up this, that type of thing. So it's, it's a, it's a dialogue. 
as opposed to just grabbing hold and taking off. Mm. Does other, that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. The, the other thing that really kind of highlighted for me as I was reading was that when we start to ask closed ended questions, right, we start to control the conversation more and it's generally, I think there was a one section in there and it talked about how that's, that's us going into diagnosing mode. So we, yeah. we kind of close down the, the actual um, consultation or the interview really, and then go into our diagnosing mode. What information do we, do we need as doctors to solve your problem? Right. right. So, so we then close ourselves off to actually developing partnerships and, and, and having a conversation. It's like, did he vomit? How many times did he vomit? Did he have diarrhea? When he was his last dewormed, okay, so he had vomiting, diarrhea, he's a puppy, hasn't been dewormed in several months, he's got worms or something. Right, so right. Start going down these pathways trying to ask questions which, which match your particular differential that you've got in your head as opposed to actually still continuing the conversation and, and being open to what they may say because with an open-ended question there, they might actually divulge more and more information that he got into the bin and he ate more food and my the, the children's left leftovers on the table that um you know may have upset his guts or something instead so right but right. um it's a valuable book and and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes um but i i found the 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 text actually quite insightful for anyone who out there is is, is, is wants to read it i think it's worth reading so that's great no just not at bedtime yeah <laughs> it took me about two months to read like i had to uh. read it in sections but yeah <laughs> But yeah. Gerardo, what you describe there, I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, but I, I, it's a, turning it into a question for you, Cindy. So the reason we probably do that is is time pressure. So, mm. so most veterinarians yeah. have have time pressure. We want to get through the day. Mm. How? What's your your take on that? The having a the perfect communication wise consulting style is, is that more time consuming or, or how do you teach that to, to to still make people you can't have a, a half an hour consult every every time and and have a deep and meaningful connection with every client or can you and still do it in a, in a timely fashion well the science that we the work that we've done we've actually shown that once mastered this takes less time so having oh, really? a more bio, a bio lifestyle social conversation, which has a relationship centered to care approach, which is really a balance between them talking, us talking, because we're doing, as you suggest, we're asking some open-ended questions, pausing and letting people talk, actually takes less time. 10.3 seconds post-mastery compared to 11.6 when you're more biomedical, eating, drinking, vomiting, diarrhea, when you've got this kind of going in real hard and asking those closed-ended questions, what I've what we see in the data is we go in like really firm, closed-ended questions, and then we get all relaxed at the tail end of the conversation. We use empathy statements, we start letting you know, letting our hair down a bit, and the whole thing just goes, uh, it extends extends the length. So this tightening of, as Gerardo said, this, you know, starting with our open questions, because the open-ended questions, you know, things like tell me what PJ typically eats in a day, starting from first thing in the morning to the end of the day. Um, tell me about your greatest concerns if we go through with this. Those types of questions not only yield good data, but they also invite client perspective. And that's something that is terribly shy, shyly, um, 
developed in veterinary client patient consultations. You know, it's clients' concerns or expectations, their beliefs, rightly or wrongly, mm -hmm. might not be right, but they still believe in something. And if we don't acknowledge it, they're not going to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, it's their values. So it's that's that 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 invitation through open-ended invites. And and as we get more astute in this work, you might be saying, oh, for heaven's sake, how do you do that all in the 10.3 seconds? Mm -hmm. um, we get a little more precise about what we ask, a little more skillful about being engaged with people, like the accepting response doesn't mean that we agree or even maybe necessarily adore the client, but it means that we accept them as a human being. Mm -hmm. And once we get that tidy, we're off. So that's mm -hmm. the work that we've done. Can I, can I just to clarify, so an example of an open-ended or a closed-ended versus an open-ended question. Uh, what two two examples, or one example? Uh, well, an example. So, an open-ended question um, doesn't um, it does not result in a, the ability of a person to uh, say yes or no. So, closed-ended questions. Um, um, is she drinking okay? Um, those types of things that we often do because we're trying to skirt along versus, you know, what are your thoughts on starting uh, Rory on heartworm preventative uh, year round? What are your thoughts about starting them versus is she on heartworm? Okay. Um, have you ever used heartworm before? Has she ever been on heartworm meds? Mm -hmm. Yes, no, yes, no versus what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about that? So, you know, it's a bit of a, you're, you're stick handling both types of questions. They're both very valid. Yeah. The issue is we, we, our tendency has been to, to start there versus the invitation to be open up front uh, earlier on. Okay. When we went through the, the training with our vets, um, I found like if, if you could put a what at the start of a, of a, of a sentence yeah. generally makes whatever thing you're thinking an open-ended question. Nice. So it was like, you just, if you, if you have an idea and you just start, you open and you just say what, and then you have to finish it off, but still okay. ask that question. It, it generally results in an open-ended question I found. So, but um, when we talked before Cindy about empathy statements, one of the things that we tackled was actually people who, don't necessarily feel naturally empathetic, but feel like asking an empathetic question or trying to become more empathetic feels a bit fake to them. Like, I, I, so I'm a, I'm a very clinical person and I like science and, and I like, you know, the problem solving aspect of, of veterinary medicine. But I realized over time, actually one thing I, I, I really realized empathy was actually when I used to work as a librarian, maybe I'll, like, let's beat that out, actually. I'm not going to say that. Ever, <laughs> no ways. <laughs> um, when I went through, when I went through um, uni, and before uni, actually, before I became a vet, I started studying. I was a librarian at, at um, local council libraries. And there was um, a whole lot of, um, I used to have quite a lot of interactions with the elderly public and developed i think over time i really developed the the, the appreciation for for people because i used to have conversations with them all the time and and they used to share their stories and and i think naturally there i started to develop this feeling of empathy um or wanting to to demonstrate empathy because i, I used to share quite you know quite quite long stories about you know <laughs> about their lives and things as i was shopping books um <laughs> But I wanted to say something that I was like acknowledging, listening, like I heard, I can see, I can hear, I can, feel, you know, I can imagine or something like that. But um, for those who are clinical and who like the kind of concise conversation and not necessarily 
feel like they should have to develop and cultivate this kind of relationship with the client. Empathy statements I, I find out I found really don't come naturally to them. And like, so how do you broach that with, with um, the students or with clinicians who, who, who feel uncomfortable with demonstrating empathy? Yeah. Well, again, another, um, you got, we both asked really good questions. So what we do know again from the research is that we can teach empathy. Um, some of us, it comes to us more naturally um, than others. Some of us, like me, I have to tone it down sometimes because I can be annoying. Um, right? It depends on the environment. Every context doesn't warrant a lot of empathy. And so in some situations don't as well. Um, but but it, it's clinical skill. So I, I teach it in the frame of it. It's clinical skill. This isn't about being like a psychotherapist. It's about having in your repertoire of skills one of it, it, it is such a powerful way of building rapport. And the science that we've been chipping away at has um, we found two things. One is that empathy and shared decision making are two of the strongest predictors of adherence. So we got to build this into our toolbox for sure. Um, we teach it in that kind of pro forma way. Like I can see, I can hear, I can feel that's empathy 101 and naming affect. I can hear that you're sad. I can hear that you're thrilled. I can see that you're super excited about this new puppy in your life. So it's not just for sad situations either. So sometimes I find if people can practice with something that's less emotional or effectual, it, it might be easier. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that we, we do is, I mean, when we teach it, we have actors. So, and as you may have had at your school, um, they, will, they will let students know how that felt. And if the timing of an empathy statement, what impact it had, was it too much, too little? Did, was it too late in the consultation for which relationship was never established until later on? And then it was kind of too late. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this, is, this is good skill. The other thing is um, some of the research coming out of medicine is finding that Developing the practice of mindfulness is a strong predictor of advanced levels of empathy, of ability of people to um, be empathetic. And so I don't know if it's about the stillness that we participate in when we do mindfulness practice, um, but there's something about being in touch with ourselves and a little more grounded that enables us to be more um, compassionate or empathetic towards other people. So that's kind of a branch of science that's going on at the medical school, probably mm. in your schools too. Mm. And so we might need to tackle that, which is interesting because that's kind of on our radar in vet med wow. as well. So how do you, at, at this point, how do you recommend working on mindfulness? What's your strategy for, for that? Well, you know, I don't think that I'm an expert in that area. I, um, I know that it is one of our, part of our strategic plan here in the veterinary curriculum mm -hmm. to try to um, provide more training, more opportunity for students and faculty. Um, to grab hold of this particular practice of mindfulness. I think starting off, um, we got to get a, you know, I, I don't think I want to be having people laying in chairs and doing mindfulness right off the bat. I don't think that, that would work for everyone, much mm. like meditation or yoga and such. I think it's a little bit of inner work that needs to happen just around uh, inner, inner matters related to authenticity, um, learning how to ask open and honest questions, like really getting in, inside the box a little bit before we can put them into um, these exercises. The last part of my answer is in our curriculum, in this course in communication, 
They do a number of assignments like reflective journal writing, which mm -hmm. whew, that didn't start off very good in the 2000s, but the writing, um, the reflecting on interactions with clients. Mm -hmm. um, they're also doing um, self-recorded appraisals of their interactions. So we record everything and then they have to take it away and dissect it and think about and answer questions like, what were you thinking, you know, at certain points? What did you think the client was thinking? You know, it's like getting up on the, the balcony and watching themselves on the dance floor is mm -hmm. as I describe it, right? It's got, you yeah. got to get up here and see what you're doing down here. Yeah. So we try to facilitate that. Whether it sticks, I don't know. Why did you say it didn't start off well when you started it? Oh, I think it's back to your point because it was so new. I mean, these veterinary students, Estrado said that you're scientists, like it's uh, writing a journal was just painful for them. Right, that being ref <laughs> being reflective and 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 thinking about how they were feeling and how the other person was feeling, it was just I just about lost my job over it. Really, it's just <laughs> it was just so new, but it's becoming um, narrative medicine's becoming more and more popular in vet med. So um, narrative medicine. Sorry, what? what yeah, what, explain that. Sorry. Yeah, well, I think it's, again, further to both of your points, it's about things that are happening in practice now where practices are um, fostering and facilitating um, writing and um, using the writing as a form for rounds, having specific mm -hmm. sessions around um, people's writing and, and their, their, you know, the, what they took away from an interaction, what they didn't, what they could have done better, what they did well. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of where I'm seeing this going a little bit. So this very successful practices are starting to integrate this into their, their, uh, their routines. Uh, we, um, as part of our training of our veterinarians who transition into our practice. So we're an emergency after hours hospital. Um, we, well, they shadow our consultations um, regardless of how long they've been out because we had quite a lot of procedures and protocols that, that kind of for a large hospital. Um, but then also what we do is, uh, depending on how long they've been out for, uh, we have closed um, loop security systems and, and I might be in a different room listening to a consult as, as, the, as the veterinarian's going through the consult, especially if they're a new grad. And quite often what might happen would be that they would be give them some lines that help them get out of the room. Oh, I left my thermometer at the back. Actually, I just got to go check something um, with a, a senior colleague or something, or do you don't mind if I take Fluffy out the back so that, so that um, I can get his temperature or something, you know? So yeah. leave, have, give them some way of getting out. And then quite often what will happen is they'll use that escape word or something and they'll come into the next room and they're like, what happened then? And I was like, oh, okay, you didn't hear what you said and or you didn't hear that actually, you know, maybe go back and say this and then that might open the doors again and then um, address their concerns and understand and so forth and then go back in and then they try something different. Um, nice. And I'm like, I'm not saying that I'm a pro consulta, um, but I'd learned so much from the, the text and um, Alison Lambert stuff as well. Yeah, nice. And um and um, listening back to your own consultations was really powerful, especially um, when you think that, oh, you know, I was in there for so long and you realize you're only in there for eight minutes or something. Yeah. And that yeah. story that the client said went on forever when it was like only 45 seconds. That was a opening statement, those kind of things. So I, I, I don't know whether or not some people out there have the, the ability, but sometimes what we will do is we'll ask the client whether or not we can re record this for training purposes and stick your phone in the room and put it on record and they just, they soon forget it's there. So 
That, that, that's excellent. I mean, that's state of the art. That's that's um, that's really where we we need to be to be going with this work. I mean, we can do as much as we can in schools. Um, it's really when you you know the rubber hits the pavement and you're out in practice. And to have coaching and feedback and that kind of mentorship is spectacular because you can be, you know, you're integrating now other clinical content with communication skills. And you know, and even back to the schools, we need to ensure that communication is not a standalone weird kind of thing, but it's integrated with clinical medicine and mm -hmm. other procedures. So that that's I wanted to just kind of go back to that. And your point, uh, I mean, that's just brilliant. If you can, and what I found with clients is when we tell them that we're recording so that we can get better they're thrilled um, mm -hmm. to think to think that we're really looking at ourselves you know and, and trying to improve how we communicate how we interact that's that's great so you, you go you no, I was gonna ask you both of you how, how do the vets respond though to the idea of being recorded and and your big brother spied on do you get any resistance to it or, or are people pretty open to the idea um yeah I, I, we, we get a little bit of, of well, in, in the interview, we actually say, look, as part of your training, we will watch nice. consultations and things. And, and to, to be honest, actually, the, the video recordings, the security camera footage is there for safety. Yeah. But... Um, and also um, it's there to clarify what's being discussed in the room. So quite often we will use it for client complaints mm -hmm. and they will make accusations or they'll, their recollections, like my of, of the consultation conversation may be different so we would go back and listen and then we'll say actually it was said this way and our veterinarian did say that would you like to hear the recording and quite often they're like oh did i say that okay no that's fine like i'm sorry it was my misunderstanding mm -hmm. so and sometimes what we do is we almost use it as a as a um a, a treatment waiver somewhat it's like so just clarifying that da -da 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 -da, and you decided to da -da 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 -da. So if that's okay, I just want to make sure that we're clear on that or we're on the same page. Is that okay? Is, is that what, you know, is that what your thoughts are at this stage? And then, so therefore it's on camera in those situations where you don't want to pull out a, um, you, you, you know, document it down the history, but mm. sometimes it, it's enough that actually, you know, you don't want to go, Hey, look on the way out. Can you sign a treatment waiver? Just to say that yeah. you actually, you went yeah, against yeah, my recommendations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but, um, Quite often, so it, it is at least my experience is that the veterinarians do feel a bit uncomfortable, but they feel a lot better about you listening in, right? Rather than you sitting in the corner like a weirdo listening <laughs> to their consults. <laughs> Especially if I'm a guy and the the, the vets are a, a, a female, yeah. like the the, the owners yeah, will look yeah. at me, and yeah, it's like, yeah. no, I'm not leading this. I'm just in the corner like a weirdo, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, Cindy, what's your perspective or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think very much the same. I mean, I don't think everyone there's not a readiness on everyone's behalf for this work. Right. I mean, some people are really not comfortable. I think if you set it up at a point of hiring, that's brilliant. Um, I think also you have to have people, as you describe yourself, like it's, you've got to do this in a supportive fashion. It's not about catching people mm. doing the wrong things. I and mean, it's got to be really balanced. And I always like to, when I'm giving feedback, I use this, the model called ALOBA, agenda-led outcome-based analysis. And I'm happy to share that with you, but it's yeah. always starting with the learner's agenda. You know, I'm going to be hanging outside the door today. I'm going to be listening listening or going to be by the table or whatever and what do you want to work on like what's your focus so really making it their stuff not me going in and saying dang you really need to work on that john yeah. like you know <laughs> really really letting them feel empowered so i'll send that along and you might 
find yes, that please. useful. Yeah, yeah. Put, put, put that in that's the link. really cool. That would be brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So in your in your teaching, and then you you said earlier before we started recording that you do consulting or, or teaching in in private practice as well to to veterinarians. I think one of the most common communication related problems that you find that people struggle with or mistakes that people make in the in the veterinary communication. Oh gosh, um, some of the some of the well, but, but the the lovely thing is is that there's themes, and so at least I'm not we're, we're not working on everything. So much is good. Like there's a mm-hmm. lot of good work going on. I think taking us back to earlier in the conversation, agenda setting that's rare, very very rare, and quite often um, clients or producers aren't asked what it is that's on their mind. Really, I mean, it's sort of the presenting complaints, they get right to the patient, bingo, versus, you know, um, my lead hand's sick, we, he, I don't have any help with the, with the cattle, uh, I can't have any, you know, f- I can't be doing anything frequent with these animals, um, you know, and, and so not understanding the context or the, the story or, you know, I am pregnant, as you can see, I'm eight months, this dog is very, I'm having difficulty, I had to get my neighbor to come over and help lift her in the back of the car, mm-hmm. I really, I need to, I need some options here, without taking the time to do that, so it's not, that's not happening, what we see is a fair bit of asymmetry, where we think that our veterinarians are thinking that they're doing a lot better than our clients are experiencing, Okay. so, so that's a little rough, um, I see the interruptions are wicked, um, I think you've read some of my work. I mean, 15.3 15 point, 15. seconds, if we're lucky. If we're lucky. It's it, even lower in some references. It, isn't it? Until, until you interrupt. And I just interrupted you. Too. Like, no, <laughs> no. That's fine, but, but... And then <laughs> you know, cut in with, yeah. the, cut with a closed or something. Yeah, well, I, and I think as a society, we do that too, right? Like we're, we're yeah. rapid. We think fast. We move fast. Um Sorry, and I interrupted you. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, it's it's really funny. I um, I listened to you to your lectures uh, at the at the at the AVA conference earlier this year, which I really enjoyed. And you 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 talked about the interruption thing. So ever since then, I've been aware when I consult. The problem is I catch myself a second after I've interrupted. I'm like, damn it, I've done it again. <laughs> it's such a such a hard thing, as you say, because you are you're in a rush. You're trying to trying to get through consults uh, and ever since you've said that I, I I find myself doing it over and over again but it's good because it's mindfulness at least I'm aware of it so yeah, I, nice. I, can, I can stretch that period of time until I interrupt a little bit a little bit longer yeah well, you know, your, your the use of the word mindful again in, in a different sort of way than I was taking it, um, ha- having getting some of the science in front of people, I mean, not to make everybody read the book, maybe highlight some sections or whatever else you think is important, it starts to give a bit of a reference point, like then they can be a little more aware of, of their behavior, of our behavior. And so I think... Um, you know, starting with small goals, a couple of things is 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 more manageable than taking on, you know, the 73 skills that are listed in the Calgary Cambridge Guide. Mm. But really, you know, as you suggest, being aware, going, oh, gosh, look, and I read that. I think we're doing that as a profession. I need to not do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I say, you know, start start small. And, um, and, and some of the stuff we can practice at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, give, give us an example what, what can I go practice on my on my family <laughs> well on, on yeah on your kids I mean um, open-ended questions um, empathy statements uh, not interrupting um, just stuff stuff like that I mean it, it just it goes a long way a in you know our, our ability to practice but building relationships with them builds mm. good solid scaffolding uh, much like it does with clients 
you you mentioned agenda setting um when I, when we when you started talking about common mistakes what clarify agenda setting uh, what 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 do you do to to do that yeah well and and so and then I, i'm going to answer your question and i'm just going to no i'm no i'm what i'm going to say is that this this should set the frame for the entire consultation so we we use this a bit of as a um as a table of contents if you will Okay. It's sort of your table of contents of how this interaction is going to go. And if as a result of clients revealing somewhere halfway through information that wasn't kind of up in the agenda, something new comes up and you prioritize that as the doctor, mm -hmm. you pull it back up and say, I'm adding it to the agenda. So the agenda is really about identifying what brings the client and the patient to the practice. Don't make any assumptions. Um, it also, um, in, in light of what they've revealed, it's up to, to the doctor um, and other professionals to prioritize, reprioritize based on kind of your diagnostic reasoning that's already happening and this and that and your differentials. And then to screen and just double check, as I mentioned earlier, just check back in and just say, you know, you've mentioned that you want to use the example again, you want me to trim his nails, you mentioned he's having trouble going up and down the stairs, a little bit of his not eating his dinner as much as he used to, and he seems maybe just not to be as, as energetic. What else? So again, open-ended question, not is there anything else? Because that's a closed-ended question, right? Mm -hmm. It's shifting our mind to say what else and a pause. And then what we do is we let people know, um, and this can be for eMERGE as well. I mean, it's just a little more expedient. Uh, sometimes a little more truncated. Sometimes you got to get the patient back to treatment to get it stabilized. So things might be happening in more of a rapid place or state. Um, I always think of my little Sheltie that got hit by a truck and I went into eMERGE. And um, I was incredibly impressed, not only with triaging, taking care of her, getting her stabilized. And, and the technician said to me, Cindy, what's your, what's your greatest worry? And I said, this sounds so ridiculous. I said, but her fur is so matted and covered in dirt. You know, I'm that, like it, that mm. was not a priority at the moment, but this was a little show shelty and mm. she had been tumbled under a truck and everything for me, seeing her all mucked up like that, like that was just kind of the epitome of how bad it was. She was broken pretty badly. And she's, you know, we'll get her cleaned up. There's other stuff we need to do as well. And, you know, hand on shoulder, and this is really tough. It's not what we expect to be doing tonight, right? Mm. So even in those more um, urgent, you know, the context changes but the skills don't it's just our decision of what we need to do and use in that moment um and and, and without dropping the the re relationship it doesn't have to be dropped it just might have to be expedited yeah that's excellent um if you don't mind me asking a bit of a uh, maybe a bit more narrow question it, it's not necessarily covered uh, very much in in, in the textbook but I don't know if there's resources that you've come across because I'm, this is, would be a big topic for veterinarians out there, I know this for sure. And it'd be around um, communicating finances mm -hmm. and, and having conversations about money and so forth and, and things like that. Um, like, how do you, I don't know how to frame this into a question as opposed to, um, like, how do you tackle that? How do you teach um, veterinary students how to have conversations around um, money? money really yeah um it's um yeah it's a great question again both of you have great questions um we just we've published a fair bit on money and again i'm happy to send you those manuscripts if you want yeah. um we we know that um failure to discuss cost of veterinary care up front can contribute to client suspicion and mistrust mm. 
And that's again why um, any verbal clue that's dropped about cost, um, you know, you know that, that sort of the yin and the yang of cost is that regardless of whether people have enough money to do stuff, they still want to know all the options. They don't want to be pigeonholed into already what we think they need to be doing or what we imagine that they can afford or whatever. So they, you know, 90% of the clients we've surveyed, regardless of whether they have the bucks or not, they want to know. And they want to know, um, they want to talk about money in terms of the value, um, not in terms of cost and service for us. They don't care. They don't want to see our fact sheet in the drawer that says, well, compared to human medicine, because we kind of did that in North America for a while where we grab human health costs and we compare and contrast and clients found that to be very offensive. Mm -hmm. um, they want to talk about the value in terms of prognosis, their ability to care for the animal in light of what's going forward, their ability to maybe travel with their animal to highly infected parasitic places or whatever. So they want to talk about it in that way. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for them and, and their animal? And the way we teach this is um, we, we get students to grab hold of and, and, and or just to even say, you know, this might seem awkward or kind of funny. And I'm, but I recognize the cost of veterinary care is a consideration of, of most people. So can I just check in with you and find out, is there some, is there some concerns, anything we need to be attend to as it relates to going forward with care, taking care of Molly? So it's about having the verbiage and the softness and the appropriateness and respect um, I would say in just about every consultation, I mean, relative to where you are in the series of consultations, but uh, clients are frustrated that we aren't talking money. Mm -hmm. And then they, they end up feeling outrageously guilty. Um, they feel um, that they're, you know, in many cases, poor caregivers or that we are underhanded and sneaky and just out to make money. Uh, now, this, I think to put things into context, I, I in, in, in Australia, all veterinarians discuss the actual fees, or at least in, in our practice in Jibbon, yeah. and when I was in general practice, we used to talk. Um, but in the States, are there like some with techs or something, or or would there be financial officers who communicate the actual dollar value or something, or or is there a trend where community money isn't communicated in the consult room, things are done, and then they kind of hit at the reception desk or something on the way out? A little bit of everything. So what we've we've been, you know, we, I, I would say there's no consistency here um, necessarily. At a practice, there might be where they may get um, the cost of service when they leave. We've found that unless our technicians are really fully trained, um, they're not necessarily equipped uh, to have the cost conversations as would the doctor be because of just the issues related to, um, you know, prognosis and diagnosis and and such like that. They and, and so again clients they don't quite get what they need so it really depends i'm not saying that across the board depends yeah. on the training that they've had um but cost discussions it's something i don't know we we grapple with here and it sounds like you maybe have mastered that, that better than us uh if clients are given the cost estimates um there may then be an opportunity to just you know obviously check in i mean what do you do when you're given the the costs and the estimates how how, how do you manage if people say you've got to be kidding me i Mm, how, you know, how? Yeah. yeah. For, me, for me, it's, it's acknowledging and, and hearing it. Okay. And I'll, and I'll say something like, Oh, look, I, I, I can appreciate this is a, a significant funds. And I also appreciate that you weren't prepared for this. No one's prepared for emergency situations. Nice. Well done. Nice. And then, and then I also try to normalize and go, Hey, look, if I was in your situation, I'd be struggling too. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be feeling the pinch too. Yeah. So um, I listen, I acknowledge, I kind of normalize it and try to get on the same page. 
And then I don't justify, I don't go, well, the cost of this is because this facility was three and a half million dollars and so forth. Right. I then go um, something along the lines of, I link it back to what value the diagnostics will, will tell us. So the, right. going back to you know, what we discussed, um, the reason why we want to do the x-rays was to address the concerns regarding the, that you said regarding him eating bones and also right. to um, it will the other things it will demonstrate to us will do this this, this and rule out this um, and then I'll generally roll off with um, like you know do, do you have any concerns or what, what are the questions you have and then and then offer them something I will go we do have finance options if that helps Nice. Great and then I, then, then I do this awkward kind of counter four seconds in my head. <laughs> One, two, three, four. It's kind of, but that's them thinking. It's them doing math in their head, calculating the value versus the cost, and then also trying to generate solutions on how to make finances move. Um, the silence isn't them going, or rarely is it them going, you're, you know, you're an ass. You know, how can yeah, you if they think you're an ass, they normally say it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> generally just weighing it up in their head. That's mm. very Australian. You see, we in Canada don't do that. <laughs> <sighs> no, that, that's, that's a really great example. Um, and I, and to further to your point, you know, I often say like, um, um, resistance means they're engaged. Resistance doesn't mean they're saying no, but it and it requires a skilled communicator to say, "Hey, you know, I'm hearing you. I'm I'm, I'm seeing your hand up, and I'm seeing this is really not what you expected. Tell me what you're thinking." So again, I, we're going doing some research on the side around resistance, and what we see right now. Um, is that people when people run from it like they just take off it's like you know know if there's a prescription a food prescription or a preventative a dentistry or surgery and um and that quite often when there's resistance it's dropped so that's why we've got to build this toolbox of skills to be able to say you know what I can do this. This is a helix. It's a back and forth. It's iterative, right? It's once said is never enough. And I'm hearing that you're, you're, you're overwhelmed with what it is I'm proposing. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So you also, you know, to do that, you got to have some guts to be able to, it's not always going to be always that nice. It's not always going to be, you know, pat in the back and you're so lovely. People might get frustrated. And so again, when we're teaching communication, we're teaching to that higher level of mastery so we can weather the storm and go beyond just kind of running. If someone says no, yeah, if they say no, if, if it's like, mean, well, we could do this, which is like, and two two jabs of injections or something, or jabs are administering um, medications, and then home you go, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like going from one spectrum of what you believe needs to be done based on the conversation you've had um, with the client and the problem this that was generated and so forth, and to, all, yeah. to all of a sudden like the complete other spectrum, which is like, well, we could do that instead, which is just two injections at home. And right. I've had, we've had complaints and actually one that I generated myself, which was like, we, we went around through discussions around um, the concerns they had or what was influencing their hesitation to proceeding with the diagnostic plan, uh, the treatment plan, which was right. around about a thousand dollars for a laceration of the eye and kind of trauma to the eye. Um, right. And then after several discussions, we realized that finances were a big issue um, and one of the main ones was the fact that her husband was non-contactable and she needed to make that decision with him. Right. So then, then I developed a plan, which was essentially, okay, 
um, a next step down, which was let's you know, give pain relief and manage and so forth, rule out you know severe ulcers, and then have a discussion with your husband around try to allow more time for a discussion to be had to address that concern. Even I can have the discussion with them over the phone. Um, and um, there was too much of a difference between what I was proposing to what I actually, to what I originally proposed and what I finally proposed that she felt like as if um, I didn't stand up hard enough for my original, um, original recommendation. So then the, the complete shift to something different, she was like, like she was confused by that and actually okay. lodged a complaint because or not complaint, but she, she provided some feedback along the grounds that, well, because I resisted, then that was the other option. Why didn't he just give me the other option? Um, from the outset. It, yeah. Yeah. From the outset. Um, and, um, like, so I'm not sure if I'm articula articulating this properly, but it was, it was kind of like, as if she felt like that was a push to see whether or not they would take it. And if they want to take it too hard, take this instead. So, but if I really believed it, then they would have been a bit more resistant to actually, um, to, to making, to try to help her adhere and, and, and get through, overcome the, the roadblocks to accepting the, the plan. So. Wow. Wow. And, and you sorted that out, I guess I'm hearing you got that sorted out or were you able oh, to have the, a conversation? The patient, was, the patient was fine in the end and, and we've had conversation and, and, but it was really quite insightful for her to provide that feedback. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, that doesn't happen all the time. Because, yeah, it was, it was very rare we get the feedback where, where they provide us information about um, when we are giving them an alternative option that's cheaper. Quite often they will take that and be happy with that as opposed to actually be confused by that. Right, right. And they feel like, you know, they feel like as if as if the, the more expensive option was just, a, you know, a stab to try to make some yeah, money. Yeah, yeah when the, the second option was what really needed to be done so mm. right is there is there a way oh sorry go ahead. no no no, no sorry you go i was just gonna say is there a way in hindsight that you might have um kind of reframed your trajectory your offering um mm. in a way that was more transparent for her that you think might have made a difference mm. yeah i i actually listened back to through the consult okay. and to try to see where where the conversation um, changed because actually this, this consult went for an hour um, in, in between different emergencies. I let her had time to think, came in, addressed another concern, came in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, and I expressed numerous times through, through the consultation about my um, the reasons why I felt that the you know option A was the best and and tried to like build um, ways around finance options and so forth to make that happen. But um, I think in the end, um, I, I don't think, and it was maybe right at the end where we decided to go with option B, mm. where I kind of, I kind of dropped the, the concerns that I had regarding option B and then, and I tried to make her feel good about mm. option B, right. Mm -hmm. But made it too, made her feel too good about option B that she was like, why didn't we just go to option B? Option A was just for you trying to grab some stuff out of me. Ah, uh, okay. okay. So it was like, I made it, um, I didn't address my, I didn't re re repeat my concerns in the end statement that look at, as we discussed, well, the original plan um, addresses all these concerns and, and, and would have helped us rule this out. But at this stage, we're going with this plan and, and I can appreciate why. Um, but, and I just want to you know, make sure that we're on the same page that it, it means that I can't um, rule out these three things or something, but you know, so just, yeah. 
I think at the end, I should have just reiterated the concerns I had in, in, nice. in, in a nice mm. manner. Mm. Right. And what you just described right now is it would be, and you probably already know this, that'd be a beautiful example of how to round on communication. That's mm. the mindfulness that's up on the balcony, looking at herself on the dance floor. And the only other thing I'd ask, but I won't ask, I'll ask you though, is to add perceptual skill. What was mm. going on for you? And again, if you can take it that next notch, so there's the content skill, the knowledge, there's your process skills, what you're describing, and then there's what's going on for you. And if you could be transparent with your staff, I don't know what it was. Was she attractive? <laughs> I don't know. There's something that there's something that pushes our buttons, right? Sometimes where we kind of get off our game. And if we can figure that one out, that's that's the full picture. And um, yeah. that, that that's what I was going to say earlier. Um, money especially but uh, but a lot of communication things a lot of that probably comes down to our, our own beliefs and values and how how you're brought up and even personality style and that so i find the money conversations particularly hard but i think that's to do with how i was raised and how my my parents were with money and that so i my dad uh, he doesn't listen to this does he <laughs> anyway, i'm trying to decide uh, my, my, my dad my, my my dad would be the the the, the person who would uh, if somebody gave him a, a, an estimate that he thought was what was a lot of money he would be he'd be the person who'd react and go no that's ridiculous you know, that's yeah so i don't know if that's why but i i hate that reaction when i when i give an estimate and a person comes back with a with a completely understandable negative attitude, it is. A, I, I'm with Gerardo. I understand it's a lot of money. I, I have complete empathy with that. I don't like spending a lot of money at the mechanic, um, but I, I take that that reaction almost personally. So I try and yeah. avoid it at all costs. And then I'm very quick to do what Gerardo says to go. Oh, that's okay if you don't. You know, we've got a plan B. That's a, yeah. Um, but it comes it's a great, back to, exa great but, example. Yes. But, it, but it comes back to me and I, I'm aware of that. I, I, I try to avoid giving estimates because I've learned that I, despite my best efforts, I really struggle with it. Uh, yeah. I, I try and find different ways to, to, to do it. But that the question I want to ask is, so that's clearly a, a personality trait of mine. Um, how yes, much, how much, in, how much in your teaching or your thinking or, or what you guys do with communication, how, how much variation do you allow for, Let's call it personality types or like, do you, do you keep, do you take that in account? Do you recommend people look into that, what they're like, what are their tendencies and those sort of things? Yeah. Yeah. Again, a great question. We do. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we're teaching the content and the process and the perceptual skills. So in our, you know, in our safe little laboratories here at Calgary, um, our coaches are trained. I mean, we're, we're inviting students to get inside their own self all the time. What, what are you thinking? Like, what is your thought process? Could be exactly like you suggest, you know, well, you know, money, we didn't talk about that at home. My parents brought the metal box out from under the bed on Sunday night and I was told to leave the room. Um, and so it's very, I feel that is very personal um it's it's really none of my business and then we have to talk about well if it's none of our business but people want to talk about it what impacts that going to have on your outcome mm. so we're constantly doing now does it mean everyone's ready to examine their own biases and values no no way. I mean, this is lifelong skill. This isn't just take a course and you're off to the races. This is about, and I'm loving you, how you're both describing how you're integrating this into your world of work. Because again, I, don't, I think if we don't have it at that level, it just sort of, it, it, we know from the science and medicine, skills deplete right down to about 30 to 50%. So we can graduate them really as rock stars. And if they're not getting the mentorship and the coaching when they're out there, um, it's, uh, they're only holding on to a few pieces. Mm. So, mm. um, yeah. 
do do you guys uh, in your course do you do any sort of personality assessments or or personality styles or so so, so people can learn what like do, do you believe in the whole personality testing i want to call it a trend uh, that, yeah. that, that is out there well is you know i I don't. Uh, a lot of people do believe in it. If I'm out working, doing um, work cross country, and I'm working in a practice that's new to this, I might use it just as a starting point. Mm -hmm. The MMI, you know, the Myers-Briggs is good, um, as, as you probably know, it, or other ones. It's sometimes just fun as a, like mm -hmm. getting things going, because sometimes people have not really even thought about the fact that there's people that have different preferences and styles. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I don't like is when people get hung up on, well, that's my style. Yeah. It's like, well, it is your style. It's good to be aware of it. Now we need to stretch and grow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's further further to your lovely point about, you know, your dad's reaction to money and you're finding other ways of working with that. But number one, you know it. You know that that's a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're trying to iron out the kinks uh, in that. And so I'm not just saying that's who I am and I'm not going to deal with it. Uh, so as long as we can get past okay. our style. And then, um, you know, I really preach on... Um, it, it's not it's not necessarily about how you want to be treated. It's about how they want to be treated. And it might mean you're going to have to act a little different and try in some new skills to be able to meet people where they are. Yep. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Well, a lot of those things are what they call, we, we call it flexing. You got to flex your style. You know, it's, it's good to know what you're good at um, and the fallbacks that you have. In, but also, it's also good to know how it is that you respond to stress and nice. you know, how do you communicate in, in, in stressful situations? So myself, I'm a driver, I become quite autocratic and, and directive and controlling. And I know now like, and, 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 and it's, and it's hard because it just comes out naturally. It's like, yeah. what would you <laughs> do right now? It's like, I think, what do you think? You do? That's great. But like, it, it helps me 50% of the time, <laughs> but it's about flexing. So um, I, I always That's find, nice. um, when, when I listen back to consultations, I, I, and we talk about interruptions and things and, and uh, in our, in our um, consult coaching, and when I listen back to consults and you get these expressive people that come in that love the story, they tell this amazingly energetic and um, like creative kind of story as to what's happened over the last 24 hours in, in a not so coherent manner as well. So oh. with facts flying around, Oh, we needed this, but, but, but then what they did. You know, and then, and then you can hear the veterinarian just, uh, 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 and, and then you just go, wait, slow down, mate. Just let them finish off their thing. Okay. <laughs> and, then, and then you have a real direct kind of person's come in and they'll just go like, you hurt his leg. What do we need to do? <laughs> and then you're like, oh, yep. yeah. So like I, I, you can hear it, hear it back. And um, I found that um, reflecting their and mirroring their energy and, and communicating the way they communicate with you somewhat can sometimes really help in terms of, matching conversation styles um yeah yeah so i don't know that's something that uh that uh i, I, I feel when been listening to the consults of veterinarians that it, it helps them be a bit more mindful of of how how to be how to have a comfortable conversation with someone in the consult room 
and, yeah. and made sure that they communicate and listen to in the way that kind of it's comfortable for them. So, but um, yeah. Oh, and I was just going to add to that. And also just our proxemics, right? Like our proximity to people, what the barriers are. So there's the talking part and then there's just setting up the room properly. And, you know, if you've got someone, you know, you might not be staring people down. You might be kind of, you know, adjusting your body so that it's not so threatening. I mean, it's all of that. And it's not just the one size fits all, right? It really depends on the person, the situation, all those kinds of things. Well, one I'm, thing I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, Gerardo. Yeah. <laughs> okay, as, as, as soon as as soon as you said setting up the consult room, that that piqued my interest. What do you what do you are, are there, is there a good way or, or what are what are bad ways or how do you set up a consult room for good communication? Yeah, well, again, I never got a chance to go into your consult rooms when I was uh, in Australia, but here we're still back at the stage of even having a couple chairs in a room. Uh, and again, we might be really behind. Um, it's about managing the exam table, um, ensuring that it's not a barrier, recognizing when we are sitting behind it, why we're sitting behind it. Is that appropriate? I mean, the safety of the patient as well. Um, we got computers happening in rooms now. There's a whole art around engaging people in front of a, of a computer so that mm. again so I, I might be outdating myself like making no, myself no, sound no, like dinosaurs no. um yeah i mean it's um just you know that do you have chairs in your consult rooms where you would take the initial history if this is like a you know wellness visit is that something that you're doing mm. already no uh, we have a we have a an out clinic we have a bench an examination bench with the with a computer screen um so there is definitely clients on the one side, me on the other side. But I, I personally don't use it like that. Um, I, I, well, I'll tell you what I do, and whether it's a good or a bad thing. But we also have a little bench for the for the client to sit on, and I'll generally during history taking go sit down. Okay, because uh, you're just, tall. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, yeah. I, I, I just I just find it's well. I also don't like standing all day, so it's a nice break for me. I'll I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll sit down and and cuddle the dog more than examine but start examining and start observing or dog or cat or whatever and and sit next to the client um and and have a have a chat first and then i'll say okay let me let me examine the dog and we'll pop him on the table and but then then it becomes a practical matter of the client has to be that side to help me control the animal and i'll be on the other side okay yeah. right well it's great to have a look at um we found in the gender work we've done that um same-sex dyads are more satisfied so that tends to create more of a relaxed atmosphere if you're with another fellow oh, um, really? versus a female veterinarian yeah and it was it, it's uh, it's quite remarkable the satisfaction relative to same uh, from, from, same gen from the client's point of view it's, it's yes and, and from the veterinarian's point of view it's interesting yeah, it's interesting. So again, something to be be aware of, like what's 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 going on. Any anyway, I mean, satisfaction is important, especially for our clients. Yeah, it's so I I find maybe it's just in Australia that the men are generally more difficult clients. And it uh, might be different in Australia. Maybe that's yeah, just a, they, a North well, American trend. Yeah, maybe it's my own perception, but that it's that that they're more more likely to have an issue with the money in that. I find I find most. Most female clients are, are quite happy to, to yeah. They they might they might just not be verbalizing it. Maybe they're still thinking it, but they'll they just go along with what you recommend much easier. Whereas the the males we deal with, maybe it's just my area as well. Like, are they the ones who're going to say, "Are you fucking dreaming? No ways." Yeah. You yeah. Go, How much? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and it could be a it could be a cultural thing, a gender thing. Um, I just want to finish up your question about the proxemics or the the mm. um, the, the setting. We are really committed to um, helping our students. It's, it, it depends on the urgency of, or the episode, but to mm. getting a history before they get their hands on the patient. Okay. And so it's the work that we've been doing is that this is that this is. Uh, I mean, you're still collecting history while you're doing a physical, but what, that's why the chairs, any kind of prompt that says we're going to sit and have a visit, okay. and I'm going to learn a little bit about what's going on. It's just a lovely uh, a, an opportunity, like you say, to get off your feet for a bit, to invite people to sit, relax a little bit, and some of them won't sit, right? And so mm. you're going to be mat mat them as well and maybe okay. not saying have a seat and they'll be saying um so try to get your history and then you can integrate what you've gathered on history obviously into your differentials um it, as opposed to trying to pull it all through through the physical exam so mm. okay i love the idea around the sit and how sitting perceptually uh, for them feels like as if the interaction has occurred for longer than it actually has as opposed to actually so you've taken the time to sit mm. means that you've kind of you, now you're prepared to listen and you are taking, you're giving them your time. Mm. Uh, but also they, their perception of time is longer than, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, is that correct, Cindy? Well, it, it is correct. And we just, um, I was just reading another report about um, sitting to eat versus standing mm -hmm. is that a, we're more satisfied and the food tastes better and different when we sit to eat versus stand. Oh. But we, we tend to eat more when we sit. So, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so again, you'd, you'd have to be skilled because if people could, you don't want everyone sitting around for 45 minutes to an mm. hour, right? So this is where once the skills are integrated, you know, you're signposting, you're going, oh my gosh, I, I love hearing your story about your granddaughter and I wish I could sit here all day long. I got to pull us back on track, yeah, Mrs. Okay. Smith. So oh, it's having. That's a really good way to, to um, wrap that up a little bit. You know what I mean? Like to. Yeah. Those How, are just transition statements and signposts and all those lovely mm -hmm. skills. I'd love to ask you a couple of more specific questions if, if you're okay, okay with it. How Absolutely. For, uh, is everybody good for, for time? Oh, yes, about, delay. Uh, about 20 minutes. I'm sorry. I'll get ahead to work yeah, at some stage. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, I, before chatting to you, Cindy, I, I put a, um, a post out on social media to ask for questions from our listeners to say, well, what are difficult situations that you, right. that you, that okay. you, deal, that you deal with regularly? Um, so that I can, can ask you, uh, what what do you say in the following situations or, or how do you deal with them? I'll start with okay. Gerardo. You had a few good ones as well. Um, so I'll take it back to the money one. Um, one that people worry a lot about and they don't know how to respond is you discussed money and, and it's not going all that well. And the client says to you, uh, all you vets care about is the money. Uh, how do you how do you how do you answer that how do you come back come back with that one without starting a fight yeah well i, I probably use an open-ended question tell me more about that tell me about your past experiences sounds mm. like you've had a situation where you felt that it was more money than you wanted to pay or was worth the um what what, what, the, what the offering was for for barney um so i would i use the skills open-ended questions reflective mm. listening or you might just say um you know, you sound, you sound concerned. I, I want to learn more about that. So what we end up doing quite often is we think that we have to re, have a rebuttal and mm. we have to have an, have to have an answer. Mm. And my rule of thumb is when in doubt, ask a question. So when in doubt about what he's thinking or what his past experience is or what's in his craw, you know, what's maybe it's a 
pre-Christmas and he wants to put a couple more presents under the tree. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I want to create an environment where I ask open, honest questions. And, um, you know, he might just say, well, you know, he might just get really even more frustrated and just say, absolutely, you're frustrated. This stuff is expensive. I also know that you really care for Barney. And so we got to figure out what to do about that. So again, now you're going back to client perspective because you've understood the role that this animal plays. Or I know you don't really give a damn, but I know your wife does. And I heard you say early on that that dog's in the house now, not just sleeping out in the garage. Okay, so I got to get real clear on what it is that you all want for, for, for Barney so that we can come up with the best plan. So that's where we integrate that client story mm. and use that when we come back to these difficult conversations or when we're explaining and planning, um, we're, we're taking into consideration the gestalt or again, in small animal, it's tougher, tougher, right? You go to farm and you get, you can get a picture. You can mm. smell, mm. you can look at the ventilation. You can see who's working, what state the place is in. It's tougher and small, I find. You've got to get a little more, more story. Mm. That's really good. So. That, I just had one of those moments where I go, all right. <laughs> a light bulb moment. Okay, okay. I like the, the question part. That's, that's excellent. Gerard, your turn. Hit, hit oh, you, go, you go, mate, you go. All right. Um, I, one, of the, one of the listeners uh, wrote in and said, as a, as a female vet, she struggles to give feedback or advice to her male colleagues, whether it's, whether it's and especially if it is not criticism, but, but disagreeing with them. She, she struggles with that. How, how do you, what do you tell your daughter to deal with, how, how, how to deal with that in a, in a better way? Yeah, and so would this be an owner, an associate? Is this a new grad? Uh, just, a, just, a, I think a more recent graduate. Um, so okay. not super experienced, but but yeah, she obviously knows knows her stuff and and needs to disagree with one of her colleagues about about something. Okay, so I mean that's that's a that's a tougher one. Sounds mm. like she wants she wants to uh, disagree and have mm. and so she might if she's got the stealth she might want to just have a conversation before she wants to disagree and just investigate. Just say you know I'm not quite sure how it rolls here, but when we have disagreements with one another, what's the protocol? Okay. What has the practice been? So open ended question. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. We don't really have a protocol here. Okay, well, that's fine. I, you know, I, there's some times sometimes where I'm thinking you're not going to agree with me. And there's times where I'd like to share my ideas with you about what, what your thoughts are. I'm just wondering if that's something we can do. It's a conversation. And if she's got the guts to set the environment up, she's going to change the culture. But I would certainly start with, you know, what is your perspective on us giving each other, sharing ideas and giving each other feedback? Yeah, she'll okay. get some some kind of reaction she'll probably have to use some reflective listening and eventually they'll have to kind of tidy that up and make a plan good okay excellent and and the same same person said how do you how do you give instructions without sounding like you're giving orders so i'm presuming she's talking about asking uh, the technicians to help her with something and that um, but she doesn't want to sound like she's ordering people around okay um I mean, it's kind of maybe the same kind of thing. How are we, how, say, say it's the same kind of thing. And I would, um, she might want to just have a little visit with self. Is she, um, is this relationship centered practice she's engaging in? Is it more doctor centered, kind of more directive? Um, and so might want to just have a little check in and, and have a look at what her style is, what her tone is when she's asking. I mean, sometimes she's got to give instruction, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's a, a, a more serious situation, but I think I would have a discussion ahead of time about how that's going to go down. 
Mm. Um, and for her to do a little bit of checking in with herself. Mm. Good. Okay. Have you got any, Gerardo? No, I like, I like the euthanasia question. That's a good one. Aha. Uh-huh. You go. You ask it then. What to say when a client thanks you after performing a euthanasia? Yeah. Because that the, the, the situation is, and I, I, when Gerardo, I've spoken about this before. Um, you do the euthanasia, it's, it's, it's all good. And then at the end, the client says, thank you very much. And your reflex response is, oh, it's a pleasure. But you, you can't say that. <laughs> so how do you respond? Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, this is how I got my career started was end of life communication. And um, what I, I did a ton of work with clients post animal death. And they are, it is such a personal time for so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's like you're, you know, you're kind of the artist that has painted a picture and it's hung on the wall. You will forever be um, valued and they will talk about you years later. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, I might just say something like, um, if they say thank you, and I might just say something, I, I so appreciate you trusting me and that, that I could be here with you and Molly today. Thank you for letting me be part of your healthcare team. Um, so it might be something more, a broader kind of comment, just acknowledging that they feel grateful, um, that they're appreciative, uh, that this is tough and you were there for them. Mm. I don't think I'd interpret more into it. I might mm. just say, thanks for picking me. Thanks for picking our practice. Thanks for trusting us um, to take good care of you both. That's, good one. that's really good. That is a that's good awesome. one. I'll, I'll, I'll add that in <laughs> to my, <laughs> my repertoire as well. That's excellent. And then the last one, Cindy, uh, something's gone wrong during a, during a routine procedure and you need to make that horrible phone call. Uh, to to explain to somebody that that we, we've lost your pet or something something went wrong. How do you start that? How do you even cross that bridge? And so, um, a I like to get people face to face, right? If we can okay. get them in, if they're not okay. too far away, that's not always possible when mm-hmm. we're so far away from one another. Um, so let's imagine um, that we've called them, and we don't want to wait long on these. People get frustrated. They don't trust us. Um, And so as soon as we're in a position to grab that phone, um, I would be calling um, Mr. Uh, Jameson and saying, Mr. Jameson, I'm wondering about your day, how it's going. You know that um, that, uh, Rusty came in for a routine dental and um, I'm needing to speak to you about that. Things have not gone as we planned. Mm -hmm. So I might do that. Um, if we can get them in and I would say, if you have someone like, I mean, I'm worried about them driving, so I'm going to try to manage all those types of things. Um, I mean, disclosing medical error, that's a whole, that's a big kettle of fish. Um, so very often we start with the signpost and just say, this is something that we, this doesn't happen routinely. Um, he's died under anesthesia. Um, so it's, it's signposting into this, letting them know what's happened. And then there's a whole dialogue that follows thereafter which is a, a, yeah. a, a number of, of series of skills. And again, yes. I have lots, lots of information on these topics that I can share with you whenever I'd, it's appropriate. I'd love you to. We can, we can put all of these in, in, in show notes. Okay. I'm making notes. Um, as you... did, did you want me to send you that cost discussion? Um... Yes, please. It, okay. It would be fantastic. Okay. A medical error. Yeah, this has been okay. incredibly... Um, insightful conversation. Thank you very much, Cindy. Oh, I'm gonna, oh. We're going to have to have more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a focus I really, session, really, a focus I really, session on one topic. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Yeah, you yeah. could. We could. We could have a whole podcast series on this. Just communication with Cindy. And <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Um, should we wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah. I. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm good. Yes. Cindy, right. was there anything that you wanted to cover in particular, or something, or? Um. No. I don't think so. I, I, there's only two points that I wrote down, like in addition to what I've already snuck in here and there, is that getting a client perspective is the new content of a history. Okay. We are, we, we're still kind of stuck. Some places are very stuck, some very traditional histories, and we haven't begun to appreciate and integrate client perspective. It, it is so incredibly valuable in explanation and planning when we actually get to give the information planning going forward to grab hold of the story, the component parts of the client situation of their experience. My example of my pregnant client who could barely get the old uh, Malmute into the back of the car without help. She really wants to talk about end of life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so um, we got to get that story and then figure out how to factor that in to explanation planning. And, and we, we've really got to work on empathy. I, I think I shared when I was um, in your beautiful country that, you know, 300 visits and 150 of the patients were six, and there was only 7% of those uh, cases that had any utterance of empathy. 7%. Only 7%. Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, this is done in North America, so I'm going to own some of that. But um, when I go around the world, it, it, it we run shy. And I think we need to have a discussion in our practices as to its importance, what it is. It doesn't mean that with sympathy, it's not like meaning we own it. Mm -hmm. um, it, it and then to talk about what holds us back from, from using that skill. I'd like mm -hmm. to see that happen. Mm. That's, that's a big hobby horse of mine i am um, in 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 discovering what works for me and then trying to when i'm mentoring younger vets is the is the empathy thing um but what i what i'm learning more and more is it's not for the client's benefit or it's not just for the client's benefit it's very to a very large degree my own benefit if i if i if i take that empathetic approach i am much more resilient and much slower to feel uh, much much slower to feel burnout and frustration because if mm -hmm. i don't have that then i'm getting angry right. all the time and i'm one of these stupid clients coming with me with these stupid problems and yep. they never listen yep. and they never yep. that whereas if i change that mindset to to deciding to be empathetic because i was going to ask you how how do you do it and so you, you 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 talk about practical examples of things that you can say in empathetic statements but, but how to get yourself into that frame of mind. Have you got any advice on that? How, how, how do you approach it? How do you advise people become more empathetic? Yeah. Well, again, I'll go back to my daughter. Um, I'm watching her evolve and develop her professional identity. She has peaks and bounds for sure. She deals mm. with some really rough, ugly stuff. And as, as, as we all do in the profession, um, I'm noticing her take uh, being much more um, dedicated to taking care of herself. I know that okay. sounds very trite, but I know, yeah, you know, you, the profession works hard. It works long. It sees stuff that's tough. Mm. Um, she's also finding herself in practices that are, as it sounds like both of yours are, they um, pr they provide space to talk about these issues. They have grief rounds. Um, they examine their communication, the things that go well and things that go bad. Um, I, I think that um, you know there's there's a number of things in our profession that we have. They're sort of the untouchables, the things that we don't necessarily talk about. That I mean, dealing with death at a rate of five to one compared to human dogs. Like there's just some stuff that I think we expect ourselves to cope with, um, and we don't 
we don't always. I mean, we put it, we can be tough about some stuff and, you know, the financial stuff and all of that, but they're, they're big issues. So, so I'm watching that work for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I think you have to also, you have to be committed to, to want to survive in the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've most certainly found in our research that um, relationship center communication, which, you know, consists, which is, you know, that lovely developing relationship, not hugging and kissing everybody, but, you know, that nice balanced conversation with good skills is highly predictive of doctor satisfaction, client satisfaction, and adherence. We've got three pieces of research that just showed that. So um, it, it's worth getting comfortable with these skills. Absolutely. And I mentioned early on mindfulness, again, that research coming out of medicine, um, the, 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 the employment of a mindfulness kind of orientation to life is helping to deepen people's ability to be empathetic. Mm, excellent. So, yeah. So if, you, if, if somebody wanted to learn more about all of these skills, what, what are good resources? There's obviously your book that people can read. But where do you go to to get better at this? Well, I mean, I think it's going to practices like both of yours, yeah. <laughs> having mentorship. I think um, there's some CE out there mm-hmm. for sure. Um, any, any good ones that you can that you can that off the top of your head? Well, I mean, your schools on the east coast of the country are doing, uh, uh, you know, Michelle MacArthur at Adelaide. Um, you've got Allison across the pond a little bit. Um, um, Dan Scholl is at, is he Brisbane? Yeah, he's yeah. a good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's good. He's very good. So, you know, maybe in, in light of the distance, I mean, I'd love to come see you every month, but I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, even grabbing hold of those folks, I know Michelle would love to uh, put together a, like either a retreat series or an in-depth workshop series for people. Um, I think okay. she's just waiting for the profession to kind of go, hey, you know, pick me, Dan as well. I don't know about him, how interested he is. Um, but I think it's finding those people and empowering them and saying, hey, we want this. Mm. Um, you can come to Canada. Okay. Come. Hey, that sounds really good. Oh, I think yeah. you, did you mention some communication conference in St. Kitts coming up? Yeah. Oh. We're in Saint- <laughs> that sounded good. <laughs> and we, were, we were just in Banff, Banff this year. I would love to have you in the mountains. And then um, St. Kitts is um, going to be June second to the fourth at the Park Hyatt mm. um, got a, got a great rate on it. This incredible, if you have like some, one special you want to bring, mm-hmm. like it's a honeymoon or something. <laughs> <laughs> cool. uh, while we're there, I'm just going to go to this conference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's more podcasts. Maybe it's, um, I mean, people need to practice. This isn't just about reading the book, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You've really got to practice, practice mm-hmm. the skills. I think that's the key thing is to bring yeah. it. And, and as Cindy said before, it's one thing at a time. There's 70 something different things you can do. Um, and quite often we go, what is the one thing you want to, what, what's the one thing that resonated for you in this workshop? It's I got to listen more or yeah. I got to not interrupt. And then just the next thing, what's the next thing you're going to do after a month. And nice. My, my, my thing actually was consciously, having and saying at least one empathetic statement, right? In some way, if it was appropriate in, in, in the, um, before my physical exam. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And, and it, it, it was awkward because like, it felt awkward to me, but, but I could see them that that allowed them to then somehow open up again and gave them permission to then sort of ex- express how they felt somehow. Um, 
and it was only through seeing that I saw the value of that. But for me, it was a conscious decision that I wanted to try this. So, and, and I just, yeah, I, I see, I hear, I can, I can, I can, I, whichever way I use it, but yeah. I had to keep it really simple. It's like, as you said, empathy, what I want. Otherwise it was just too much of a big thing. And yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. well, and please don't beat yourself up. I'm guessing if you read in the book about cognitive empathy, I'm thinking both of you use cognitive empathy a lot. Mm-hmm. So have a little read in that. I can't teach that here because uh, the students just get so hung up on it. So, and my, I have examiners and they examine them on this stuff. Oh, and I'm going to send you a checklist that I work, use in a practice that I work in in Florida. And mm-hmm. they've included that in their performance reviews. So it's basically getting a bit of a metric around, around skills that you're using. And I use it carefully and playfully um, and supportively. So I'm going to send it to you right. so that again, you might consider that gets at your point about, well, how do you, how do you teach this? How do you build yeah. on it? Yeah. Mm. No, okay. that's incredible. Fantastic. I can't okay. wait for all of that and we'll, we'll put all of that in the show notes. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you. Thank so, you both. Thank you both so much.